Hey, welcome back to another episode of e-commerce on tap. This episode, we're going to dive into finding and keeping the right manufacturer. I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, let's get started. Nathan, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Excited to dive in. This is our season three, even though I think I've been running e-commerce on tap for like six, seven years now almost. And it's exciting because this is my first time having a co-host. So now I get to banter even more with someone that is even more knowledgeable than me about supply chain. And I know you've been keeping an eye on topics of what's going on in the world. So I would love to start there. Let's, let's, let's hear what's been catching your eye in the past uh, you know, month or few months. Yeah. So I was at a conference recently and, and spent about an hour and a half with Amazon and uh, was really digging into their Buy With Prime uh, offering. They signed a deal with Shopify uh, in like November, December of 2023, um, which basically said that uh, you know you can use your Shopify store, but use Amazon's backend to do all the fulfillment. So you get a common inventory pool for FBA, as well as your Shopify stuff. You get to keep the emails for Shopify store uh, owners, stuff like that. Um, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. There's one, uh, you know, a year ago, uh, Shopify had the stated goal of like fighting Amazon and trying to beat them. Uh, and they spent a couple billion dollars buying Deliver and some robotics companies and then realized that they probably weren't going to catch up with the about a trillion dollars that Amazon's put in up to this point. And so, uh, you know, they divested all that sort of stuff. And so this is just interesting from a perspective of how these previous frenemies are now trying to work together. Um, but then I also dug, dug into the solution itself. I think this is going to be a bit of a game changer, especially if you've got a lot of Amazon um, work that's going on. I've got one brand that we work with that most of their sales are on Amazon. They've got a duplicate 3PL. And we're looking at this and saying, well, let's, let's cost it out and see if it just makes sense to use Amazon as our fulfillment partner. Um, so it's been, it's been really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good play by Shopify. I've already used, you know, Buy With Prime on a Shopify site already. So I think it's, you know, already helping a lot of consumers feel comfortable and confident in their purchase on a Shopify site. And I think in terms of, you know, what Shopify did in pivoting their logistics arm is, you know, they basically partnered or quote unquote sold it to Flexport for, I think, like 10 or 15% of Flexport. And Flexport is, you know, one of the fastest growing freight forwarders in the world that also has a 3PL ecosystem. And so I think it makes a lot of sense. And I also just read up last week that Flexport received, I think, $260 million from Shopify as kind of like a strategic investment alliance, even though like the information kind of pitched it as like emergency funding, even though I know Flexport has a really strong balance sheet. So I thought it was just interesting how, you know, Shopify divested their kind of 3PLs that they've been investing in over the past, you know, five years, um, buying, you know, Deliver for $2 billion and another uh, robotics company for, I think, half a billion, and then kind of, you know, divesting that and, and really aligning with Flexport and, you know, saying, hey, you have the logistics strength, you know how to run these 3PLs and handle freight forwarding, you know, we're going to partner more with you. And so I think it, it really is interesting to see Flexport refocus on, you know, just be becoming you know the best e-commerce platform and if you look at some of these major enterprise brands that they've really tried to target now you know there's so many large retailers that don't use shopify that i think in the next five years we're going to start to see transition on a shopify yeah for sure i think we should just call flexport what it is now it's, it's now a subsidiary of, of shopify uh, same sort of <laughs> thing as like Clavio 
and loop returns. I mean, what, what Shopify has done is they've basically said, hey, we're going to own this ecosystem. We're going to use the app store to enrich our own uh, you know, merchant experience. But then when you have a good idea, we're just going to build it into the core product. And so, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. It, it's really interesting. But I guess what's been on your mind the last couple of weeks? Yeah, everything happening in the Red Sea, you know, it's just crazy. I think freight is always getting disrupted nowadays. And, you know, there's, I guess, uh, you know, terrorist organizations, however you want to call them, attacking these freight forwarding, you know, container ships that are going through the Red Sea and causing a lot of disruption. So these container ships are getting rerouted to other other routes. And, you know, it's causing delays and it's causing costs to rise. I mean, you know, you remember just what, two, three years ago, where freight rates just went through the roof because of COVID, with all the disruption that was happening there. And now, you know, it seems like it's happening to a smaller degree in the Red Sea with all these diversions of container ships to avoid, you know, the terrorist and, uh, you know, uh, militant activity that's happening there. So it's, it's an interesting time to be in supply chain. There's always something coming up. And, you know, it's, I think, really just causing uh, another stir for anyone trying to manage their freight. Yeah, you know, I think there's, there's two parts that are really interesting about the Red Sea issue, in my opinion. Uh, the first one was, I think a lot of people probably thought that uh, this was only going to impact Europe or, or impact them more. And we really wouldn't see it here in the U.S. And to some extent, that's been true. Um, but we're starting to see just the repositioning of vessels and things that are causing issues. But I think the other really interesting thing is that this is the first time in history where someone has enacted a naval blockade without a navy. And so you think about, right. you know, usually you had to have these really big ships that would try to shoot these other ships out. Um, and the, the Houthi rebels are doing this with drones and relatively cheap missiles. And so uh, I, I just wonder what that means for potentially other non-state actors to want to cause issues with global trade. Yeah, I mean, it goes to show you don't need to have like a huge expensive military or some crazy, you know, weapons to disrupt trade and, and you know, have countries call in their naval ships to protect a lot of these container ships. And, you know, it's, uh, I think, a really tricky, tricky situation because, you know, there's all these random groups, I guess, that are trying to, you know, disrupt these container ships. And I think for the most part, they want to do that because they're incentivized to try to make money through terrorist activity like this or pirate activity like this. And it's unfortunate, but something that, you know, everyone in, in freight forwarding now has to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, we'll see if the Somali pirates, I think, which are more of uh, on the lines of making money, start doing this. But I think uh, the Houthis are doing it for more political reasons, uh, just the, the death toll in Palestine and stuff like that. So it's messy. <laughs> so, um, let's try to dive into something that, uh, depending on wh or where you are, could be really messy or very, very sterile. And that's factories. Um, just curious, how many factories have you been to? You know, that's a good question. I was trying to think about this this week as we were preparing for this episode. And I, I think it's over 100. I honestly think it's over 100. I mean, I've been in and out of China and throughout Asia for the past, you know, 15 plus years. And I mean, especially when SourceFi was just starting in 2017, 2018, I mean, there was trips where I would literally see, you know, a dozen plus factories. And it was just so cool to see how a product is actually made. I mean, I think I remember one of the most eye-opening products that I saw made actually were those 
plush toys, you know, like those Beanie Baby type of toys. And I just remember as a yeah. kid, like I thought they were like so, you know, soft and enjoyable and, and, and cute. And then like you see them being made in a factory and it totally ruins that vision in your mind that you had as a kid with these like plush toys because the way that they're made in, in a factory is not cute at all. Um, it's literally just, you know, a machine that stuffs them and, you know, the, the, the actual outside is being, you know, sewn together. But, um, you know, that I think for whatever reason stuck out as I thought about what factories I'd been to and how many factories I'd been to, because I just remember as a kid loving these plush toys and then going to this factory and seeing them made and that love diminished very quickly. <laughs> What what were they doing? I mean, were they like beating the the, the plush toys, or what was going on? I mean, it just was 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 dirty and it was not clean, and uh, the process was was not Santa like. You know, at least for me, growing up, for whatever reason, I thought these plush toys were like made in this like perfect, very clean, like very lush environment, and uh, that that was not the case. I mean, you know, basically, you have a lot of times, you know, the outside material coming in through a third party vendor, and then you have the main factory that's assembling it. So they have kind of the machine that's, you know, stuffing those, those uh, fillers, those outside, uh, you know, layers with with, you know, this plush material, and it just, I don't know, it, it ruined those toys in my mind. That's too funny. It kind of reminds me like a lot of times like people are so disconnected with how the products that they consume are actually made. It, it drives me crazy a little bit. I remember, do you remember like uh Saragento cheese? Do you remember those commercials on TV? Yeah. It was like, you know, they, they would have this like beautiful chef and it was like, you know, the countryside of Italy and they had the thing of Parmesan and the chef is like slowly grating each of the cheese to put it into the plastic bag. I'm like, there is no way that that's happening and you're getting it for two dollars like that's, i'm sorry like this is yeah. this is false advertising no <laughs> yeah yeah I, I mean it's crazy you know i think for those of us that work in supply chain we really see kind of behind the the lens of marketing in regards to you know how these products are actually made and you know i, I think even when it comes to certifications and standards like you know you walk into a factory and they have you know iso whatever it may be and you know, I'm sure the factory looked a lot different and a lot cleaner than, uh, you know, after they got their certificate. So it's just an interesting dynamic when it comes to, you know, factory certifications, audits, and, you know, the whole world of factories. But how many factories do you think you've been to? I'm curious what, what your answer would be. Well, well, not hundreds, but certainly dozens, maybe, I don't know, 60 or 70. I actually worked in a factory for about 18 months. Um, so I was at in the Lipton Tea Factory in Suffolk, Virginia. And I could tell wow. you more about tea than you could ever want to know. Um, but that was a, a pretty fun experience. That's cool. I'm curious why they had that in Virginia. Were they getting like, I would assume they were getting the tea leaves from like all over or where did tea leaves even come from like that? Yeah. So it was actually pretty interesting because um, now, now we're, this is, this episode's now about tea. Um, but they, the, the altitude in the region of the world that, that the tea is grown from, and it's always two leaves in a bud is what they do. Um, that has different tastes. And so to get the Lipton tea taste, it, depending on the, the blend, you would say, okay, we're gonna have four parts Kenya, one part Sri Lanka, three parts Chile, and one, and, you know, one part Argentina. And like, we would have these giant robots that would take these sacks and cut them up, and, and that's how we blend the tea. And so it, it was an interesting thing because you had to try to make sure that it was a consistent taste um, regardless of when it was made or where it came through. Um, 
but yeah, that was that was a fascinating time. I remember I was a production supervisor, and so I, you know, when it was it was inherently very dusty, and so I would uh, I would be in there, and if I had to help clean a machine or or do things, I would just come out and I would have like tea behind my ears and my hair. You would sneeze and tea would come out, and it was uh, it was it was pretty wild. And I just I juxtaposed that experience with uh, you know going into an SMT clean room where you're in electrostatic stuff and it's positive pressure and, you know, even just one hair can mess up the, the manufacturing process. And there's just this huge gamut of what factories are or could be like. And it's just, I don't know, it's just fascinating. The, the question that I w- got to ask about tea is who makes sure that the taste is consistent? Is there like a lip, Lipton taste, you know, connoisseur that understands, okay, this batch is wrong and this one's good. How do they make sure that taste is consistent without drinking a bunch of tea? So uh, they do drink a lot of tea, but this is the craziest thing ever is there are actually uh, professional tea tasters. Like Lipton has, uh, I believe they're in the UK. There is a master tea taster who is like basically coming up with a standard of like, this is how this blend should taste. And in each factory, there's a quality person. They've got factories around the world. Um, but they they basically will send out a sample and say, okay, guys, you know, there's like four of these guys in the world. And they say, hey, here is how we're going to calibrate. This is what the taste should, should should be. And so they will all drink it, they'll calibrate what it needs to be. And then they taste every batch that comes off uh, several times throughout the process. And they'll calibrate to figure out like, okay, you know, is it too acidic? Is it too sweet? Is it, you know, does it have this different tone of things? And imagine doing that with uh, you know, how many varieties of herbal tea or regular tea does, does Lipton have? I mean, it's enormous. And so, yeah, there are actually people with uh, crazy sophisticated taste buds or, you know, senses of smell that are calibrating to make sure it tastes good when it comes out. It, it's fascinating. Wow. That is crazy. That is crazy. I want to ask about contact lenses, too, because I feel like that would be an interesting manufacturing process. And I know you have experience in that industry, too. What, what was that like? Yeah, so I was uh, I was the part of the founding team of Hubble Contacts, and so uh, before we even launched, we went to Taiwan and saw probably probably about a dozen different factories. And uh, there are basically two ways that you make contact lenses. Uh, the first one is you you make this hard lens, uh, and uh, you know you've got a lot of machines that are looking at it, um, and then people literally have people rows and rows of people. I'll send you pictures later where people are looking under a microscope to say, okay, is this lens chipped? Is it, uh, you know, is it scratched? Like, is it, is it perfect? And so, you know, how many contact lenses does the factory make? Millions, right? So you've got people literally looking at this all day, every day. Uh, and then, uh, you know, once they have that hard um, uh, disc that's been passed, then they go into rehydration stage and, and those work. And so um, they're starting to move into like some visual automation, um, but it, it kind of works. At least it did, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so, so that's one way. And the other way is to actually just do it soft. And so, uh, you know, with each of these, it's a lot of very specific dosing of specific polymers. They go through a kill step because you don't want anything growing in your contact lens before you put it in your eye. And uh, it's, just, it's just very fascinating because, you know, with Hubble, uh, the value prop was a dollar a day for both of your contact lenses. So, you know, if you imagine uh, we're charging 50 cents per lens, uh, they have to do this at scale in order for, for anybody to make money. And so it's just, it's just really fascinating. But uh, contact lenses are interesting because there's all sorts of 
different types of lenses. So you've got some that, uh, so effectively with your eye, you've got uh, three axes that you can take a look at. So it's, it's kind of your eyeballs shaped like a football or a soccer ball, uh, you know, nearsighted, farsighted. Uh, and you can get really technical into really, really specific lenses. Most people just need something that uh, is is good enough to, to, to correct things. And so that's what we focused on. But the multifocal, the bifocal, uh, those get ridiculous because uh, just from an inventory perspective, if I have a skew that has three or four different parameters and I want to offer, you know, 10 SKUs, well, I now have to hold like 1,200 items uh, in order just to, to accommodate what people need because you, you can't put the wrong prescription in someone's eye. Wow, that's crazy. I think it's interesting how like each part of the world or each city, you know, kind of has its focal point when it comes to manufacturing. And this is so present in China, but, you know, for contact lenses in Taiwan or, you know, cosmetics in certain areas of Korea, like it's, it's really interesting to me to see how each area of the world is is so distinct in its manufacturing capabilities. I mean, I remember having on last season of e-commerce on tap, the VP of supply chain of Dollar Shave Club. And if you recall, their main factory is in Israel, actually, because that's, you know, where they, you know, invested in and bought a manufacturing plant that was producing razors at scale. And, you know, the desert and that temperature and that environment is great for that type of production. And there's a lot of strong engineering talent there, too. So. I think it's just fascinating to see where in the world products are manufactured and, you know, contacts in, in, in Taiwan is uh, pretty phenomenal, I would say. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, it'll be interesting just, you know, we're kind of going through this period of decoupling a little bit or, you know, moving away from globalization to some degree of regionalization. Uh, I, I wonder, like, obviously costs will go up because you don't have those economies of scale, but I wonder if people will try to, uh, well, this is my favorite example. Try to grow cotton in Arizona. <laughs> like that is something we pay subsidies to do. Is you know let's let's use something that uses a lot of water in the desert because we want it there. And so I just I wonder how many more of those things are going to pop up. Yeah, probably more and more. I think also from like a a strategic kind of security standpoint too. There's some incentives that the government's producing, like the Chip Act, to you know incentivize more and more companies to produce chips here in the states and i know i saw you know on the news just the other day that sam altman was raising you know billions of dollars to try to start and launch our own chip production plants in america which which make a lot of sense you know you've heard about the risks and the chip shortages that we've already had and so you know i think there's strategic reasons for that um but i think too at the end of the day i mean globalization is a positive in general and there's certain regions in the world that should be producing certain products because they're strategically located and you know uh, that's that's just been i think the history of the world in general you know you look at how saudi arabia and some of these middle eastern countries have grown to be so rich and, and oftentimes powerful stems from their their access to energy you know they produce more oil than anyone else and so as that shifts and i think as the world becomes less reliant on those resources, you know, the, the trade is going to shift as well. That's good. I feel like you and I could talk about factories for, well, probably a whole season. Um, but I think we, what we wanted to talk about today was 
how to find and keep the right factory. And so, uh, you know, you obviously built a very successful business on this. Um, I'm curious, like, when when someone asks you to help find a factory, where do you start? What do you what do you need? Yeah, just talk to me about that process. Yeah, I mean, I I could talk for hours about that that one question in particular. But but I would say, you know, in general, when it comes to starting off and finding right factory, you know, when it comes to actually identifying a factory, you know, most of the time you're going to go on online marketplaces. You know, whether that be Global Sources or Alibaba, whatever it may be. But even before you begin that process, I think you need to understand and want to understand, okay, you know, what are similar products on the market that I see and that I love and where are those products manufactured? Because the fact of the matter is with manufacturers and, and, and factories, you know, most of these factories stem from certain cities in the world because, you know, hey, if I'm a manager at a factory producing watches and all of a sudden I, you know, decide to go start my own watch factory, chances are I'm going to stay in that region because all my sub suppliers are also in that region as well. So it's not going to make sense for me to go, you know, to another city very far away or somewhere else in the world to do that. And so I think, you know, first and foremost, the best starting point is to understand where products you love are made. And, you know, there's a few different ways to go about doing that. You know, one, you could um, look at their import records and try to understand, okay, where are those products coming from? And you can actually, you know, sometimes identify who was actually, you know, exporting that product from that country to be able to identify their exact manufacturer. But, you know, if those are uh, hidden, you can still just understand, okay, at least what country are these products coming from, and then start your focus point there. Because there's certain marketplaces online that are better for certain countries. You know, Alibaba is the biggest in China, uh, and and, and in general throughout the world. But you know, there are other marketplaces specific for certain categories or specific for certain uh, regions. And so I think it's important to, you know, start with that focal point of understanding, well, where should my product be manufactured? That's kind of the first question that I would answer. And then when it comes to actually diving in and finding that factory, you know, that's when you really start the fun because, you know, communicating with a factory overseas has so many complications and, and especially when it comes to specs, you know, I think even before you start, you know, reaching out to a factory, you want to understand at least, you know, to some degree what your product should be like when it's landed here. And so I think, you know, the first step is just understanding where you want to produce your product. And I'm curious if there's, you know, anything you would add to that in that first step of getting going of understanding, okay, you know, where do I want to manufacture this product? And then, you know, what would be your next step, Aaron? I'm curious. No, I mean, those are, that's great advice. I mean, I, the only thing I would add is like maybe taking a step backwards and understanding when do you need a factory? So um, obviously like if you're starting out and you're making a chocolate company, right, you can do that in your home. Right. If I'm starting a dog food company, I can do that in my apartment. Um, and then it's a matter of like, OK, at some point I need more equipment. I need more space. And there's always this builder buy decision that people go through. Um, obviously, if you're starting with injection molded you know, parts, like you're not going to buy that machinery in most cases. Um, but, you know, it, it's like you always have to understand that you're outsourcing the work, but you can't outsource the responsibility. And so, you know, when it comes to to looking at it, I think, yeah, looking at where things are coming from is really important. But then I also think about where's your customer. I usually say that like 90% of the headaches you're going to have with your supply chain come from your design decisions. And uh, I just like like to compare and contrast like Miriam Peloton during the pandemic 
um, just as context, uh, Peloton at that point in time had um, most of the most of not all of their products assembled in Asia, I think Taiwan, and then they were imported into the U.S. Um, Mir, when we built that supply chain, we opted to put the factory in Mexico. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more expensive. We still had raw materials coming from Asia, um, but the pandemic really kind of drew a wedge, and it was a tale of, of two companies to some extent. Um, whereas Peloton spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in air freight and you know fees trying to get things through. Because remember, we had a backlog of vessels, a back, backlog of their products uh, off the coast of, of uh, LA that they couldn't get to. And so uh, the, the wait times for customers were in the months. Uh, meanwhile, with, with Mir, uh, we had built um, a, a system so that we could produce an item, uh, produce a mirror on, say, a Monday, and then 11 days later, it's installed in someone's house. Right? We were that much closer to the customer. And so the way I think about this is also just stages. Um, I would usually uh, almost always tell a company uh, when they're first launching a new product, they don't really know if they have product market fit, to put that factory as close to their customer as you could because you don't know what iterations you're going to make. You don't know how often you're going to be at the factory. You don't know, you know if you're going to need to call and, and think about a, a, a quality issue. And so I'm a big fan of Mexican manufacturing, a big fan of U.S. manufacturing when you're doing this product market fit stage. Once you've figured out that you have a baseline level of demand and things are working, then I think it makes sense to look for uh, potential savings elsewhere around the world. Suppose you, you know, you're selling 40,000 units uh, a month, um, just in general, maybe it's 40 to 60,000 units a month. I would look at saying, okay, 25,000 or 30,000 are going to come from a low cost country. Uh, and then I still have my, my North American manufacturing base to, to flex up and down. Um, so that's just kind of how I think about just the strategy of where to put the factory, um, knowing that uh, Cost is important, but it's not always the end-all be-all. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially when you have a pandemic or some sort of, you know, major global trade issue that, you know, affects your supply chain drastically. I think 100%, you know, the closer to your customer, the better. That's a really good point. As it comes to, you know, next steps when you've, you know, let's, let's say you know where you want to manufacture your product now. How would you go about identifying which factories are fit? I mean, walk us through kind of what parameters you would look at when you're, you know, setting up a supply chain and trying to understand, okay, is this factory going to be a good fit for me or not? What, what, what lens would you look into and what would you look at? Yeah. So um, I was actually just doing this last night for a, a company that's, uh, that's launching a product uh, for later this year. Um, I always start with like, what are the product specs? What is it that we're actually making? Um, you know, I need to know if we're making something that needs to be op optically bonded onto a piece of glass. Or if something you're putting your body, right, or you're going to eat. And so a lot of this work comes up front uh, with your engineering team, um, with the marketing team to understand what aspects of what you have, either in your prototype or what you're currently producing, are really important. Um, you know, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, if it's a food product, that there's maybe a certain aspect of taste or color or presentation that is, is really important that we make sure we nail. And so you, you kind of list out all of your requirements into your product requirements document. Um, and you, you, you start talking about what things must be there and what things would be nice if they were there, what things would you be willing to compromise on. Um, and so once I understand what we want to make, then I start to look at, okay, how much are we going to make? When are we going to make it? 
Um, and that's where it comes down to, uh, you know, some semblance of a forecast. It's really hard for new products or new companies to, uh, to basically like think about it. everything's like, oh, you know, I'm going to be a billion dollars in a year. Um, and so if you don't have a good forecast, the way I flip that is to actually look at how much money are you willing to spend in inventory? Um, because if you, if you're looking at this and saying, all right, my stuff costs a hundred bucks a unit to make. Uh, I only have a million dollars in the bank. I don't know if I want to spend a million dollars in inventory. Then that like help, that's your forcing mechanism as well. And so maybe we say, all right, we're, we're willing to spend half a million dollars for this initial run and we'll run the business with the other half million. Um, but you have to get to some idea of what the volumes are going to be because once you have that, then that starts to break it down into the tiers of factory you look at. Um, in general, there's, there's kind of three tiers that I'll see across industries. The first one will be a situation where they're basically just an assembly house, uh, meaning that you're going to be responsible for all the raw materials. You're going to be responsible for um, outlaying cash ahead of time. And they're basically just renting you space and renting you people to make whatever your product is. And those are typically going to be your entry-level type factories for, um, for startups. Uh, you know, very low MOQs, somewhat high. You know, they're, they're really not going to take a whole lot of risk. Um, you know, from a costing point of view, they're just going to be like, yeah, here's our stuff. You know, we're going to charge you the same amount of money, whether you make one case or 10,000 cases. Uh, so that's like the first tier. Then the second tier are people that can flip into uh, more of a, a, uh, a buyer managed situation. So uh, they're managing the raw materials. And so this is where I just give them a finished good price. And they've got the relationships to source all my raw materials. And they're going to deal with all those logistics, all that planning, things like that. Um, and you know, there's a certain threshold where that makes sense for them. You have to be doing, uh, in, in consumer electronics, a couple million dollars a year for them to be interested. And then you kind of have your tier ones, um, which these are guys that are doing billions of dollars in revenue a year. Uh, they are really going to be your high volume, low cost sorts of factories. And so that, that's just an element of like, I look at those three tiers, I look at where the company is, where they're going to be, and then try to, um, match where the company is right now with what they need. Um, because a lot of really good ideas have died because they went to a factory that was either too big or too small to what they needed. I, I agree. I think that was a great analysis. And I like that kind of three-tiered approach. I think so many people, especially when dealing with overseas factories, they kind of misunderstand that most of the time, the factory that they're dealing with is assembling you know, all the pieces and parts that make their product up. And maybe there'll be like one main component that they do. Um, but in general you know, all those pieces are coming from different sub suppliers. I mean, I like to use watches as an example, because a lot of people think producing watches is relatively simple. But, you know, there's dozens of little components that go into a watch from the watch hands to the case to the strap, to the battery, you name it. And all those little pieces are coming from different sub suppliers that the you know contract manufacturer that you're working with has to organize and coordinate to not only get you a unit price, but also to make sure that they're going to meet your lead time. And so, you know, a lot of times if there's a delay or if there's a price discrepancy, you know, it's not necessarily coming directly from the factory that you're dealing with, but it could be because, hey, you know, the watch hand supplier was delayed or, hey, you know, battery prices went up or whatever it may be could actually cause a discrepancy. And so I think it's really important, you know, like you said, to dive into the dynamic of each factory and understand, okay, you know, what pieces are they actually producing in house and what is going to be subcontracted out to their sub suppliers? Because I think in general, so many people 
don't think about that because you just get like a unit price from your main contract manufacturer and then you think okay you know it's handled but then you realize hey well maybe there's defects because of you know the the watch straps keep tearing or whatever it may be and you're talking to the cm about that and the cm is going back and having to talk to the sub supplier that's actually making those watch straps to deal with that defect and so i think it's important you know regardless of where you are you know in your e-commerce journey or if you're working at a large company and running supply chain there to understand well you know where are these you know materials and products actually coming from to you know make this finished product that i'm selling it's it reminds me of like chipotle maybe it's close to lunchtime here so maybe that's what's on my mind but uh you know when you go into chipotle you're not expecting them to be growing the rice in the back right like they're basically acting as that general contractor effectively to give you the product that you want and even though there's a you know there's a set price for what you pay for there's a lot of other work that went into that totally i mean i think every company is like that i mean i have a friend that works at you know rivian and same thing right rivian you know, for its batteries, which it's which is the most expensive part of any, you know, electric electric vehicle is the battery. You know, that's contracted out. They're they're buying those materials and batteries from other people. It's not you know made in the Rivian factory uh, whatsoever. I mean, maybe eventually they'll try to verticalize some of that, but you know, the supply chain of some of these large enterprises is is crazy. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of parts that go into a a, a product like that. Um, but I think at a smaller scale, even if you look at like a T-shirt, right, you have you still have the raw material that goes into a T-shirt and that factory is probably focused on the cut and sew of that material, right? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I kind of want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. I mean, so you've been to over 100 factories yourself. You've probably placed thousands of companies at this point into factories or at least evaluate thousands. Um, how do you decide like which factory you use? If you're you know looking to produce a product at a factory, you're kind of focused on three main levers. Number one, price. Number two, quality. And number three, lead time. So those are kind of the three main levers that we see people looking at. Um, You know, obviously, there's a lot of factors that make up those three levers. And then when it comes to finding a factory that can have the best balance between price, quality, and lead time, you know, that's, I think, where it gets really tricky, right? Because one factory might be able to produce products faster and have a higher quality, but then, of course, their price is higher. Whereas another factory might have a lower price, but lower quality and, you know, their lead time is, is so, 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 I mean, those are kind of the three levers that I think you have to balance out. Um, and, and when it comes to a factory, I think a lot of times people overlook the actual size of the factory and how that dictates if it's a good fit for you or not. Right. Like if you're a new startup shoe brand and this company, I'm just thinking of this factory that I saw in Vietnam once, which was like a city in itself. They literally had 10,000 factory employees at this factory. It was insane. Um, but they manufactured for, you know, the world's largest shoe brands, you know, the, the Nikes and Clarks of the world. Um, and it was just incredible to see in person because it was literally like its own city. If you can imagine, like just, you know, dozens of buildings that were just massive in size. Um, and if someone came to me and said, hey, you know, I have a new shoe brand and I want to produce you know, my shoes at the same factory as Nike, I would say, I don't, I don't think that's a fit for you. You know, number one, that factory is not going to be interested in your business because you're probably producing a much, much lower quantity than, you know, a, a large shoe company. And number two, you know, that factory supply chain is not set up to, you know, really produce low MOQs and, um, 
you know, start, start with a new brand, right? And so I think it's a really key that's overlooked in terms of understanding, okay, well, what size of this, is this factory? Are they growth minded? Are they stable? You know, what, what does their cash flow situation look like as well? And what does their balance sheet look like? Because, you know, people think, oh, you know, factories are messing up all the time, but at the same time, they, they have a pretty hard business themselves, right? I mean, they've got to put money out to buy the raw materials to produce your product and they've got to employ hundreds of people and make sure those people are happy and oftentimes provide room and board for them as well. So it's challenging, I mean, to be able to understand, okay, off of my production line, you know, this pair of shoes is going to cost, you know, 10 or $15 to produce. How do they get to that number? Because they have so many variables as well when it comes to their business that a lot of people don't think about, you know, how do you actually calculate the electrical cost, like the cost that they're, you know, paying per month for their electric bill per, you know, shoe, right? That's a crazy calculation that they have to do to, you know, really get you to your your unit cost. And so I think, you know, those are the three levers that I would pull. And then, you know, really understanding that factory size, I think is a key dynamic to understanding, okay, are they a good fit for me? You know, are they already too large? Are they too small? What what does that look like? Yeah, that that's good advice. I mean, I always think about, uh, you know, even if you got into a really big manufacturer and you were like the smallest type of customer that they would accept, I don't know if I want to be there, to be honest, because, you know, if, if I've got one client that's paying me $100 million a year, I've got another client that's paying me $2 million a year, and I have limited capacity, limited attention, bandwidth, who am I going to focus on? I'm going to focus on a $100 million company, right? And so I, 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 you also don't want to be the biggest one because it's like you, you always have a risk of that company going out of business, that, that factory going out of business if you know, your business changes dramatically because you you're, you're holding so much of those overheads. So I like to, I'd love to be number three or number four biggest client at a factory. I think that's a good safe space to be um, because if I leave, it doesn't kill them. Um, if my business dramatically slows down, uh, doesn't kill them. Uh, and then also, like, at the same time, I'm going to get the right level of attention and detail uh, to go through that. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. And so, uh, yeah, when you when it comes to finding a, a factory, you know, number one, I think you've got to figure out the region that you want to manufacture in and what kind of city or area you should focus on. Number two, you've got to, you know, make sure that they're able to meet your expectations when it comes to price, quality, and lead time, and, you know, make sure they're the right size factory for you. How do you, let's kind of walk through, Aaron, I'm curious, you know, your experience here, but but how do you actually, you know, manage the the initial communication, right? What What is your, what's your first message when you reach out to a factory? Do you send them all the details? Do you send them your tech pack or do you just say, hey, I'm interested in producing, you know, a new line of, of sweaters? You know, what do you send them when you start communication and, and how do you manage that communication? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the most important thing for me when I'm working with a company is for them to recognize that this is probably the single most important relationship that they're going to have for their business. And when you're going through that sourcing, this is the beginning of a relationship. And just because you don't work with somebody now doesn't mean that you won't work with them in the future. And so how you present, how you're introduced, um, how you come across is so important, right? Because there, we, we all know that there are companies or clients or people that you have to work with, and there are ones that you want to work with. And the, the secret sauce is to be both. Um, but generally what I'll do is uh, I will kind of reach out. Um, I'll, I'll make my long list of maybe 20, 25 factories that I want to you know, 
that I think could be a good fit. And I'll do the research to say, you know, do you make something similar? Do you, uh, you know, they seem like the right size, right location, all these things that you mentioned. Um, but I'll reach out and I'll, I want to have a phone call with their sales team. And I always have like a very kind of skinny brief. It could be an email or it could just be an you know, initial conversation. But it's effectively like, hey, here's, here's me. Here's what we're doing. Uh, here's what we're looking for. Um, here's, you know, I can give them the details of here's the volumes and here's my timeline. And, you know, here's some of the specific nuances that I would need in the manufacturing. Is this something you'd be interested in? And I, I let them opt into that and say, you know, uh, yeah, you know, we, we would be very interested in producing, uh, you know, your, your apparel company. We'd be very interested in producing uh, your cosmetics company or food company or beverage company. Um, and then once I have that, then I go very deep. And so usually we'll sign an NDA um, because I'm like, great, here's all of my information that you need. And I can't underscore this enough, but having all of your specs together, having a forecast together, having uh, any certifications you've done ahead of time, and just being able to be very efficient to give them a packet with all that information, that will do wonders for that relationship. Because even if you're a small company, even if you haven't been in market before, if you come across as put together and thoughtful, and you're making this factory's job easier in order to figure out, like, is this a business that we want? Is this somebody that we want to work with? Uh, you, you know, like, it's just, it's just the right way to start off. Um, I'm sure you've seen folks where they say, hey, do you make T-shirts? They say, yes. And say, cool, what price? Like, well, that depends. And then it's a bunch of back and forth and it's three or four weeks that don't, don't go anywhere. So I, I try to have this really tight packet that I'm giving to them ahead of time. And then from there, uh, you know, you iterate back and forth and uh, ultimately get down to what terms of the contract you need as well as, uh, you know, costing and things like Makes that. Makes a lot of sense. I think the other hard part when it comes to starting off with a factory is, you know, managing expectations and really trying to understand you know, how much of a product you should order, right? Like, especially when you're launching a new SKU or a new product, you know, even if you're a larger brand, how do you really know, like, how many units should you order and, and how many units should you tell the factory that you think you're going to sell in the first year, right? I think that's really a, a hard position to be in, um, you know, because some brands and some companies take off overnight and they go from selling, you know, zero to you know, 500,000 units in a year. And that's incredible. And other brands are, are slower and in, in a longer kind of uh, journey to get to that scale. But, you know, I think forecasting and managing expectations is super hard to do as well at an early stage. So I'm curious, like, either how you have navigated launching new SKUs with, with some of the companies that you've worked with, or, you know, if you're going in to launch a completely new product, how do you how do you go about managing that with your contract manufacturer with your factory? Yeah, this is where that relationship is really important, and so I think how you're introduced is important. Um, you have to assume that you have to earn the trust of the factory, and so if I come in, I'm not really put together. I don't have my spec. I say, oh yeah, this will be a fifty million dollar you know business the first three months. They're going to look at this and be like, yeah, right. You know, like we can't trust this guy. They're they're way off and, and things like that. But if if I uh, have a well put together packet, you know, they have all the information they need. And I then say, we believe this is going to be a $50 million business in the first year because of X, Y, Z assumptions. Then suddenly they're like, okay, I, I get that. Like I, I can understand that. Now factories in general are much more picky about the clients that they take on. Uh, they want people that are going to pay on time. They want people that they can plan around. It doesn't mean you have to be making, you know, hundreds of thousands of units 
every week, uh, you could produce twice a year, but it's something you can plan around. Uh, but it, in my experience, it's really something where you just have to provide a forecast on a regular basis. And so what we usually tell our clients is that, uh, you know, you have to commit to a 12 month rolling forecast, uh, meaning that, you know, I'm going to give you a forecast uh, in January. It's going to go out to the next January and February, go out to the next February. And it's not a commitment, right? You're not placing appeals for that, but it's, it's your best indication of what you think the future looks like. Um, this is something that we implemented with Hubble, which had never been done before. That I mean, to bring in a private lens contact, uh, a private label contact lens into the market in this way, uh, selling D2C had never been done before. Um, but we committed to an 18 month rolling forecast, um, even before we even launched anything. And as we got more information about what the, uh, demands were going to be or what, you know, how well marketing was doing and how much cash we had to spend on marketing. Uh, I was able to send them that forecast. And so, uh, you know, they, they saw that they trusted it because of the way that we had implemented it, the way that we had been working with them. And as a result, you know, Hubble went from, uh, you know, a $7 million valuation, a hundred million dollar valuation in only four months. And we had no stockouts. I mean, we were growing, adding tens of thousands of more subscribers beyond what we expected. Um, simply because of, not simply, but in large part because we weren't capacity constrained because we gave a forecast that our factory could trust. And then they were willing to invest in the CapEx. I think they have like a whole dedicated factory right now for Hubble. Wow, or something like that. it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it goes to show, right? To have that level of transparency and trust with your factory is so important. And I think a lot of people overlook that. It's such such a key part of, of you know, building any brand and any e-commerce company. Um, I'm curious, you know, when it comes to your experience working with factories, do you always go direct? You know, do you work with some third parties? At what stage or point do you think you should bring in a third party, whether that be a sourcing agent or, you know, someone of that nature? What what does that look like? I mean, do you think someone should always start with one? Do you think as you get to scale and kind of need boots on the ground, you should work with one? What, What does that dynamic look like? Yeah. So I think the first decision that people have to make is do they insource or outsource, right? Going back to the food manufacturing thing, most companies that get started are food companies just because everybody loves food, right? Um, and you will make a decision of, you know, am I going to buy an extra oven, an extra freezer in order to go do this? Um, or do I want to outsource it? And typically what I would say is if you're, if, if what you're doing is, uh, is not a competitive advantage, then you should outsource it, right? If I'm doing, if I'm making diamonds, for example, I don't want to outsource that. Like that's my own proprietary technology. I want to make sure that I'm investing in insourcing and doing that. Most cases, uh, injection molding or, uh, you know, batch cooking of, of beverages or that, that's, that manufacturing process is not going to be strategic for a company. And so they should look to outsource. When it comes to uh, using buying groups, sourcing agents, going direct, I think there are a few things to take a look at. Um, the first one is what is the management burden that I can, that I, I can bear? Um, dealing with the factory means that you may have to be on call at, at, you know, on all hours of the night, depending on where they are. It means that when there's an issue, you need to respond. It means that you have to take care of all the finance stuff. Uh, you have to make sure POs are issued correctly. You have to make sure that quality checks are being done. You have to handle all the logistics. That takes effort and that takes time. So if I'm a, young company, I'm a solopreneur, um, or, you know, I, I just don't want to invest in that headcount. That's where I would look to say, okay, is there 
a sourcing company or an agent that um, that could do this, right? Is there is there something where I'm willing to pay a little bit more uh, from a cost perspective to not have to worry about this, to basically have someone in my own time zone, in my own country that I can I can work with and take care of. Um, if if I'm not concerned about bandwidth uh, and there are no language or time zone considerations, then I always say like go direct. Like you'll get a cheaper price in most cases, with the exception being if you're doing group buying. Um, you know, if if I have uh, twenty million dollars worth of spend going through a group uh, versus my five hundred k worth of spend on my own, I'm probably going to get better pricing going through a buying group than I am individual. So you should have to kind of look like that. But you know, in general, um, you know, the the billion dollar companies that are out there, they have direct relationships because they have the infrastructure. Because you know, the one or two percentage points that they can squeeze out by going direct is is worth it for them. Um, but in most cases, I think you know, founders should focus on only things that they can do, uh, which is fundraising, which is getting the product market fit right, uh, which is thinking strategically. Uh, and to the extent that you can, find uh, other ways to, to, to manage the factor. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think, I think using a third party, especially overseas, like at that startup and mid-tier is super important because having boots on the ground goes so far over there. And oftentimes you're able to get better pricing too. I mean, you know, when I was starting and, and, and growing Sourceify, I mean, I couldn't even tell you the number of times where somebody thought like they were getting good pricing from their supplier that they had found on Alibaba. And, you know, we go through a very transparent process at Sourceify to showcase to them, hey, you know, this is what you're paying right now. This is what our factories can produce your product for. And we, you know, produce a sample for them, showcasing to them it's the exact same product. And oftentimes they're saving you know, 10, 15, even, I mean, we have, you know, cases where we've saved 40%. Uh, and that's just on unit cost, right? So you're going from, you know, spending $10 to $6. It's it's a huge difference um, in, in, you know, your bottom line. And so I think it goes a long way, you know, to work with a third party that has boots on the ground, especially kind of in that startup and, and, and mid-stage. Um, and it also boosts confidence, right? Like if you're, you know, doing this for the first time or launching a new SKU in a category you're not familiar with, it is really hard to go out and find the right factory that's a good fit for you. And so if you can work with someone that's already produced, you know, a lot of different products in the industry you're looking to launch into, to me, it's a no brainer. Yeah. I, you know, I, I usually tell people like source both of them, right? Have an agent, see what they can do, see what you can do on your own. And uh, just, you know, see, see, weigh all the pros and cons. I mean, I think another good analogy that helps drive the point is uh, you could go direct to FedEx, right? And have a, a deal direct with FedEx, they'll sell it to you, but you're going to get a better deal, at least early on through a 3PL. And even though that 3PL may be taking some margin on shipping, you're going to be saving, you know, dollars per shipment because they just, they're a more important customer to FedEx than, uh, than, than you would be individually. Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, formalizing a relationship with, with a supplier. So let's say you've, you know, identified a supplier that you want to work with. Um, what do you look for in that contract or that agreement? Um, you know, what, what factors do you think are most important for you when you're, you know, starting that relationship and, and finalizing that agreement? Well, let's talk a little bit about that, about that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a tip that saves uh, thousands of dollars in legal fees a year. You still have to use lawyers, but um, what I always like to do 
is to come up with a bullet point deal sheet that I work with the factory. And so this is where we're just talking about all the commercial terms, the incentives that we care about. Um, you know, maybe you care a lot about payment terms. Maybe you care a lot about OTIF, right? So penalties if, if uh, they don't perform on time. Uh, maybe the factory really cares about being paid on time, right? Or having a forecast. And so the thought is that, again, remember, this is the beginning of a relationship. And you're just basically putting a very simple bullet point list together uh, that says, hey, here is, uh, here's, here's how we want to work. Like, this is, this is how we're going to, when we disagree, this is how we're going to resolve it. Uh, these are things that we really care about. Um, and you can keep them fairly basic and very simple. So once you have that deal sheet done, um, you've effectively aligned on all the commercial parts of the contract. Um, that's when you can hire an attorney and say, take this bullet, this, these bullet points and turn it into a contract. I think where legal fees tend to get really, really high and where things can get really stressful is when lawyers try to be supply chain people um, or when supply chain people try to be lawyers. And so what I do is I say, look, you know, Mr. Lawyer, uh, we've agreed to all these commercial terms. I just need you to do the legalese, which you're really good at. And so that's yeah, what you do. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's a great, great little hack to get things done uh, a little bit quicker and hopefully more affordable too when it comes to your contract. As, as we wrap up here on e-commerce on tap, you know, one question that, that I, I think is interesting and it doesn't happen often, but and it's happened to me, you know, I think twice maybe where like a factory has basically kind of fired us in some sense. I'm curious, has that ever happened to you where you're like trying to work with this the factory and like maybe you do like one or two or a few production runs and then they're like, no, we, uh, we're not a fit for you. Uh, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, usually you can see these coming a mile away. Um, and it's, it's when the relationship has gone sour. And so usually it comes from one party having broken their word on what they were going to do usually revolves around not paying. Um, and so, you know, if they gave you net 30 terms and you just decide that you want net 90 terms, that can really sell the relationship quickly. Um, but it can also be where, you know, the product that they took on was more difficult to manufacture than they expected. Um, it could be that the volumes are a lot lower than they expected. Um, it could be that the pricing uh, is, is a lot lower than what they expected. So, there are certain things there that can happen that, um, or honestly, like next to people not paying, what I see most is just the people that they're working with on the on the brand side just being absolute yeah. jerks and like, you know, just always yelling at them, not listening to them, uh, not understanding that they're human beings and that they're also running a business and you know how to find that win win. Um, that's when they're just like, look, I don't want to help you, uh, even though you're paying me a lot of money in some cases. Uh, it's just, it's not worth my mental health or it's not worth, you know, I don't want you to talk to my, my, you know, employees this way. I think too, what's interesting is from my experience in China, when this happens, it kind of just slowly, slowly, they start to, you know, stop communicating back slowly and slowly because they don't, they, they don't want to lose face. You know, in China, it's all about, you know, not losing face uh, with relationships, especially in business. You know, there's a term called, called guanxi, which is so important there. And so I think, you know, in this case, they don't want to lose face. So they'll kind of slowly uh, edge you out and stop stop responding. But, you know, it, it happens not often, but it goes to show, you know, it is really important to make sure you're aligned with your factory. You know, you treat them as business owners themselves and, and just be, you know, a great person when interacting with them. And 
build a relationship with them. I think that that really is the key that it comes down to. Appreciate everyone tuning in. If you have questions about supply chain, you can check out sourceify.com or ISBA. And Aaron and I are always here to help e-commerce brands with their supply chain. And next episode, we've got some exciting new, new topics. So be ready for episode two.